Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. Kings 19. Let's uh, let's think about Elisha for a few moments. Uh, we think about these. I know that uh, what we've been doing, and some of you are like, we already know exactly what he's going to do. We always ask these three questions when we come to the when we come to a personality, and we've been looking at these personalities both in the light of them being famous and infamous as far as being good and bad. We looked at men and women. We looked at some couples. We looked at some positive things. We looked at some negative things. Every one of these characters, when we come to them, we're asking the question, well, who were they? Why do we know them? And then what lessons can they teach us? And so we're just looking at these different characters because we know that not only is the Bible there for instruction and uh, an example of how we should order our lives, but at the same time, there's also men and women that have come before us that have lived a life that you and I can look at and see are there things that we can take as examples? Are there things that we can look at for um, models of how we live our lives? So, Elisha is who we're looking at tonight. So we're asking the question, well, who was he? And we're asking this in more of a biographical format. Father, mother, wife, daughters, sons, children, cousins, whoever. So what do we know about Elisha? In the Bible. He's in the Bible. All right, Miss Carol, you're you're always on top of it. <laughs> First Kings. What? First Kings. First Kings. Nineteen. Yes, First Kings nineteen. All right. Son of Son of Sheraphat. All right. So we have his father's name. All right. So we know his father's name is Sheraphat or Shaphat or whatever you want. I can't say Shaphat because that sounds bad. So Sheraphat. We'll just go with Sheraphat. All right. <laughs> Do we know anything about Sheraphat? Do we see Sheraphat mentioned anywhere else in Scripture? So, if you were to go back, and you can turn back there if you want to, if you think I'm trying to lie to you, I'm not. If you want to go back to Numbers chapter 13 and verse 5, you will see that same name given. Now, it's given in Numbers 13. Does anybody remember the context of what's going on in Numbers 13? Charles, you're supposed to. You're supposed to have. You're supposed to know. All right. So, so in Numbers 13. All right. So you got to go back. You got to go back in your Old Testament history. So you get back to Numbers 13. All the nation of Israel has come from um, Egypt. They've made the Exodus, and now they are at the edge of the Promised Land. And as they get to the edge of the Promised Land, Moses gathers the twelve tribes together and is going to select a person from each tribe, and those twelve men will 
will then go out, go into the promised land, and they will spy out the promised land for 40 days. They'll go in for 40 days. They will go up and down of the land to check it all out, to take a lay of the land, do a reconnaissance trip as modern language. Then after 40 days, they will come back and they will give a report to the people. So in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 5, you see that Sheraphat was selected being from the tribe of Simeon and he was the representative from the tribe of Simeon that was then going to go into the promised land to spy it out for the 40 days and come back and give a report. So the only other place that I could find anywhere in scripture that talked about Sheraphat, there are several other times that his name is used um, in 1 Kings and even a couple places in 2 Kings, but it's always in relation to Elisha, the son of Sheraphat. The only other place in Scripture that I could find Sheriff at was back in Numbers 13. Which even there doesn't give us a lot of indication about who he was. Are those two the same people? Why? Too many years apart. How many years apart do you think it is? A while. A while, okay. So, so, so this is a question that you may come up with. Alright, so you get to Numbers 13. The 12 spies go in. They come back. And was it an up or down vote? Do you remember? Down. It was a down vote. Okay. You had out of the 12, how many said no? Ten. Ten, right? So when they came back, 10 of the 12 said no. There were two of them that said yes. you remember their names? Caleb and Joshua. All right. So they come out. They give a bad report. The whole nation of Israel says, no way, Jose. We're not going in there. All right. God, God hears all this because God sees it all. God gets mad. All right. And he says, all right, Moses, then uh, away, uh, pox on you and your, all your household. Moses intercedes for him and God says, okay, I will let them go ahead and, and go in and possess the land except for this whole nation that was not willing to trust and depend upon me. They're not going to go out in the wilderness and they're going to wander around the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. And in that time, all of them, they're going to wander around the wilderness. This is in Numbers 14 and 33. That whole generation is going to die. So all of those 10, including Sheriffat, back in Numbers chapter 13, he would then have died in the wilderness, in the wilderness wanderings. Now you may go, okay, so he could have died, but he could have had children and that could have been Elisha. Well, you have another problem there. Because a ballpark dating for when the wandering began was around 1446 BC. You think about the you think about the time that Elisha is on the scene, and if you bet, if you're there in First Kings chapter 19, um, God is speaking to Elijah in verse 15 of chapter 19. And the Lord said to him, "Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel." So you can go back in your Old Testament history, and you can pin the date of when Jehu who began to reign right around 840 B.C. Translation, you got 1446 B.C. all the way to 840 B.C. That's a lot of years. (coughs) Excuse me, that's a lot of years. So the question is, so you get there in um, chapter 16 of 1 Kings 19, you're like, okay, so is this the same dude? I don't think it is the same dude. We got two options. Either, either there is another man by the same name, or it is referenced here in 1 Kings 19 to connect him back to 
that previous generation several generations before. Because sometimes you'll see in the Hebrew, where, like where it says, um, verse 16, um, Elisha the son of Sheraphat of Abel Meloah, um, you may say, well, does that mean that's a direct father-son? Sometimes in the Hebrew they will say, hey, you've got Spence, the son of Irvin, which was three generations back up. But that's a way that they will mark my genealogy, if that makes sense. So you get here in verse 16, and you see Elisha, the son of Sheraphat, and you go, well, is that the same guy in Numbers 13? Well, it depends on how the writer of Hebrews was referencing who Elisha was. Is that his grandfather? Well, I don't even think it'd be his grandfather because you've got somewhere like six, seven hundred years of separation. I mean, that would be a great, 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 great situation. So, where I lean personally, where I lean is that there was another guy that also had the same name of Sheriffat. Is where I lean. I just sometimes want to give you stuff. So, like, if you're at a if you're at a nice little dinner party and uh, someone in there is uh, trying to show off on their biblical knowledge, you got something to come back with them with. Okay. So, so you got Elisha. We got his father's name. His father's name is Sheriffat. Um, we know that. Uh, what else do we know about Elisha? We know where he's from. So if you look there in verse 16, it says, In Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Sheraphat of Abel Meloah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Abel Meloah is a location. Does any of your Bibles identify where that is? Or does any of your Bibles say what Abel Meloah means? Valley of the Jordan. Valley of the Jordan. Meadow of dancing. Meadow of dancing. All right. Anybody else have something different? All right. So it, it, it translated, it's the meadow, the meadow of dancing. Uh, anybody, your Bible say where it's located at? Valley of the Jordan. Okay. <laughs> so that is going to be located in Moab. Does that ring any bells? Like, where is Moab? So you got so you got you got the nation of Israel, right? You got the na- the modern day nation of Israel. Up here, you got the Sea of Galilee, and then down here, you've got the Dead Sea. There's a river called what? The Jordan, the Jordan River. All right, runs between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. All right, and then if you're looking at a map, a biblical times map, down here you have the Dead Sea. The land of Moab was down here in the southeast corner. So as the writer here is first, the writer here, First Kings, is identifying that you have Elisha, and he's going to be from the land of Moab. If you were living during that period of time, you would have known. Okay, that's where he's from. So he's from that region of Moab on the south east side of the Dead Sea. Is that significant? No. But I just think it's something good if we're going to study the Bible that we know hey, this is who he is and this is where he's from. So know his father is, know where he's from geographically. Do we know anything else about him? I, I don't have anything else to offer. 
I don't know. We don't. I know he has a mother. We'll see that later on in chapter 19. Obviously he has a mother. But we don't get a name. We don't get a name of siblings. We don't even get a name of a wife. We don't get a name of a children. We don't get anything else. So really when we think about who was he, we know a father and we know the region geographically that he came from. He was just there. He was there. So... And it really doesn't even give us any backstory of why God told Elijah to go and select Elisha. There's really not a backstory that says anything about, well, Elisha comes from this lineage, or Elisha came from this family, or Elisha did this or that or whatever. There's really nothing that is given. It's just God says, go and um, anoint him to be king of Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. God just says, Elijah, this is your successor. Alright? So then that will then take us in. Why do we know about him? Why, why is he a figure that we would spend time tonight looking in Scripture? Why do we know about him as far as from stories from the Bible? Say that again, Herlie? He was a farmer. He was a farmer? Where do you get that at? Verse uh, 19. Verse 19. Just make, I'm just trying to keep you honest, Mr. Hurley. Alright, so verse 19, it says, talking about Elijah, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Sheraphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. So that would indicate that he was a farmer. Alright, what else? What, why else would he know about him from Scripture? That Elijah passed his mail on to Elisha when he was taken. How do we know that? The what? <laughs> do you remember when you saw that? I don't. Okay, so I think I think Miss Amber, you are going to be down there around the Second Kings chapter two region. Is that fair? Oh, is that? Okay? Is that? I think that I think you were just seeing a. You were just seeing if I knew. I know what you're trying to do. You're, you're just seeing if I know what's going on. All right. So, so what what Amber's talking about is down there in Second Kings chapter two. Um, we we have a separation where Elijah comes on Elisha and says, "Hey, you're supposed to follow me." And then there's like five chapters where we don't see anything about Elisha. And then you get to Second Kings chapter two, and really that's when Elisha comes onto the scene, and he is there from Second Kings chapter two all the way to Second Kings chapter thirteen, and then he fades off into the sunset. But what Miss Amber is talking about is the Second Kings chapter two. Um, Elisha and Elijah are going through the countryside, and Elijah kept trying to ditch him. You stay here. And Elisha's not like, no, I'm going with you. You go to the next place. You stay here. No, I'm going with you. Get to the next place. You stay here. No, I'm, I'm coming with you. And in verse 3, it says that he gets around some other prophets and they say, do you realize that today is the day that the Lord is going to take Elijah to heaven? And he's like, yeah, um, this is the last part of verse 3. Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So then you get all the way down there. Uh, verse 9 do what 
Yes, but in verse 9, Elisha asked to Elijah, let there be a double portion of your spirit upon me. And so he asked that, and then Elijah says, well, if you see me taken into heaven, then it will be as you wish. So then he goes up, um, the, here comes the chariots of fire, like you talked about, Terry, in verse 11. And then it says that in verse 13, he took up the cloak or the mantle, the jacket, if you will, of Elijah, and that was like the... That was the power piece. I'm not trying to be blasphemous or sacrilegious, but that was like that was like the anointing like mantle. <laughs> right, just like Moses' staff, yeah. Okay, so he had a double portion of the anointing. He had a double portion of what Elijah had that Elisha had upon him. Why else do we know about him? What what did he do? Do you remember anything about what he did that really sticks out? I get to expose you because because some people already know all these things and I'm just so glad. All right, so you get to you get to Second Kings chapter Second Kings chapter two and in verse nineteen, one of the first things that Elisha does is that the water there in Jericho was unfit to drink. And so they come to Elisha and they said, hey, you know what? We really got a bad. We can't drink the water. So verse 20, he said, bring me a new bowl. And he put salt in it and they brought it to him. And when he threw the, threw, and then he went to the spring of the water. This is verse 21. And he threw the salt in it and it says, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the fact that he, that they came to him and said, hey, our water is contaminated. We don't know what to do. He said, bring me a bowl, put some salt in it. He goes and he sprinkles the salt on the spring and the salt is restored. That's pretty cool. Miraculous feat, if you ask me. You think, well, that, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty interesting. Well, it gets even better than that. Because then, he leaves, and this is one of those weird things, Josh, that sometimes we have to look at and just kind of like go, I, I, it's there and I trust it. Because if you follow down in chapter 2, then as he's going, verse 23, he went from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered him, saying, go up, bald head, go up, you bald head. And it says in verse 24, he turned around and he cursed them in the name of the Lord, which that does not mean that cussing is okay. That, that I'm not, this, is not, this is not accommodating cursing. But he cursed them in the name of the Lord and then what happened? And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. I think that's a good lesson when you start running your mouth to the preacher. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you, you never well I, I don't know how many bears are just running around the wilderness down there in Jericho <laughs> I mean that's just kind of a weird thing but I mean you just never know when you start talking bad about the preacher <laughs> what might come next so right there we see another miraculous work of Elisha he's going some punk kids come out and start running their mouths at him he curses in the name of the Lord and two bears come out and tore up the boys well that's not it you get to 2 Kings chapter 4. He is there, and there is a, another widow of one of the prophets that comes up and says, we got problems. My husband is no longer here, who is the provider of the home. I am financially destitute, and 
we have debts and bills that we cannot pay. The creditor is coming and is going to take my two sons and then commit them to indentured service or slavery as payment for my debt. She goes and she says, I need your help. She says in chapter 4 and verse 2, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. So what does he do? He tells her and he says, go get your jar and get all the jars you can find and start pouring just a little bit of oil that you have left, start pouring it in the other jars. And as she poured, the oil just kept flowing. The oil just kept going. And there it says, um, verse 5, So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and she poured, and, or, and as she poured, they brought her vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. And she goes back to Elisha, and Elisha says, That should give you enough oil to be able to go and sell and to pay off your debts, and then you should have enough oil left over to go and live on the rest. So just... My imagination, I think she had about a thimble's worth of oil. You know what a thimble is, Kalina? Okay, so about, about, a, about a thimble's worth of oil, and she just starts pouring, and it doesn't stop. And next thing you know, she has jars and jugs and buckets and totes and containers and pitchers, and everything's full of oil, and it was all just flowing out of that thimble. Like, very miraculous work of Elisha. Of God. Anything else come to mind? I got more. Where? You remember? A couple of chapters. Really. A couple of chapters. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 6. Chapter six. So in 2 Kings chapter 6, there is some um, men that are out chopping down wood. And as they're chopping down wood, one of the axe heads falls off and it falls into where? Remember? The river. The river. The river falls into the water. Okay, so, but it wasn't just a puddle is what I'm trying to get at, Mr. Harold. Okay, so it was a body of water. It was a river. It fell into the river. And as it falls into the river, the guy that lost it goes, uh-oh, I am in trouble. This is verse 5. Alas, my master, it was borrowed. So he had borrowed this axe head. So obviously he couldn't afford one on his own. And in that time, axe heads weren't just sold at your local Atwood. You're not just going to go down to Walmart and pick up another axe head. This was something that was a lot more expensive and a lot more involved in putting together. So he is distraught. And it says there um, in verse 6, the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he shut in the place, he cut a stick and he threw it in there and made the iron float. So here's the picture. Falls in the water. You're like, they didn't have magnets, so they couldn't have gone magnet fishing for it. So they're like, what do we do? Well, hey, I know what I'll do. I'll cut me a little stick, and I'll throw the stick in the water, and then all of a sudden this axe head floats to the top, and they reached in and grabbed it. That's pretty miraculous. That's pretty special. What else? Chapter 5. Chapter 5? What about chapter 5? Name it. Name it. The Syrian army. Okay. He had lepers. He was lepers and uh, was wanting to be healed, but didn't know how to go about it. So the slave girl of his wife said, "If uh, my master could only go to the prophet, 
Israel. And so they send him with letters and all. And at first, the king of Israel was like, well, what can I do? I can't help you. So they finally point out to Elisha. And he goes and he thinks, well, Elisha's going to come down and heal me. And Elisha sends his servant down and says, go wash yourself in the Jordan seven times. That's right. So he gets all just upset and everything. Well, there's better rivers in the Jordan. And, but he, his servant tells him, well, if he had told you to do something else, wouldn't you have done it? And so he says, okay, fine then. And so he ends up getting healed. That's right. Dips in the Jordan seven times and he comes out healed. And it wasn't even that Elisha was there. And it wasn't even Elisha he didn't even speak to him. Elisha knew he was coming. Sent his servant. Said, go, tell, go give him a message. And... God miraculously worked through that. That's right. That's right. Anything else to remember? He raised a child from the dead. Whose? Um, uh, it's it's Shulamite? Yes. Is that what you're gonna is that what you're yes. seeing if I knew how to say it right? Yes. Did I say it right? <laughs> okay. So yeah, so he raised the he raised the Shulamite. You remember where that's at? Chapter four, verse thirty-four. See, Miss Stacy knows what I'm gonna ask. So so you get there, so the story there, you can correct me if I get it wrong. So Elisha is traveling, alright, and he's coming through the area several times. Um stays over at the Shulamite's house. She tells her husband they were a pretty wealthy pair. She tells her husband, let's build him his own guest room on the top of the house. We'll put a bed in it, a chair, a table, a lamp, and that way when he comes through, he'll have a place to rest. So he goes in there, and he's kind of staying in there over the night. He starts thinking, I should do something nice for him. So he calls the Shulamite woman and says, what should I do for you? Um, His servant says, hey, she doesn't have any kids. That might be a nice little present, you know, a housewarming gift for her. So he tells her, you're going to have a kid this time. And so she does. Fast forward a number of years. The son's out in the field with his father. He says, my head hurts. Father says, take the boy to his mama. Gets to his mama and dies. Shulamite woman says, unfair. Goes and finds Elisha. And Elisha comes back. And if you read that account of how he raised the child, even that is... In my word, even that is weird, the way that he did it. If you go back up there in 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 33, it says, So he went in, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Okay. Alright, so he prayed to God, will you raise the kid back from the dead? Well, that's not all he did. Verse 33. I'm verse 34, I'm sorry. Then he went up, lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself out upon, the flesh of the child became warm. It's like when God's deciding how people are going to perform these miracles, I wonder how God chooses that you're going to do it this way. So you have this child laid out. Elisha lays himself out on completely a mirror copy of the child. And it says the body got warm. Verse 35. Then he, this being Elisha, got up again. He walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Now you will find people... (laughs) That will go to seed on the implications. The 
will say, why did the child sneeze seven times? What does that seven times represent? They will say, he laid on the child twice. What does that two times represent? They will go to seed on him laying down there eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, hand to hand, chest to chest. And that must mean something and, and that must represent something. You can run down that path if you want to. I think God just ordained Elisha that it's going to happen like this. Maybe maybe there's some secret there that God's going to tell us later on and we're going to be like, man, we should have thought about that. Don't go to seed on that. Don't, don't just... You will find someone that will try to sell you some ink on a paper to try to convince you that they know what was really going on behind the scenes. But the reality is, is the Bible doesn't tell us what was going on behind the scenes. The Bible doesn't say this is why the child sneezed seven times instead of eight times or six times. The child sneezed seven times and came alive. Sometimes we can go to seed on the significance of the seven times and we miss the greater miracle that you had a child that was dead that is now alive. Because God worked miraculously through the life of Elisha. Can we also say that Elijah obeyed God? He did obey God. But sometimes you'll get in some of these things and sometimes inquiring minds will go, well, what does that mean? Why is that there? And sometimes they will they will, uh, they will get distracted. On the non-important things. Right. Any idea of how he died? No, Elisha. So, Second Kings, chapter thirteen. Second Kings thirteen. You get down there to verse fourteen. It says, "Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness." of which he was to die. Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him and went before him crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. Why do I bring that up? Because you had these men of God, and it's not just Elisha, but you had these other men of God that were able to do miraculous works. And yet, how did Elisha die? He fell sick of an illness, and the Bible says that's the illness he was going to die from. Um, doesn't say what kind of illness. You may say, well, Elisha, why didn't you heal yourself? Because that wasn't in God's plan. That wasn't the God, that, not, that's not the way that God had ordained it. So Elisha dies in 2 Kings chapter 13, and is that the end of Elisha? No, he heals a man after he's <laughs> <laughs> Where do we see that? Later in the chapter? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so later, yeah. So verse 20, so later in the chapter it says, So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. That is also <laughs> peculiar. Number one, why do you have the bones of Elisha just uncovered? I mean, how, how is that? Did you just throw him in a ditch and he decomposed in the ditch? I've got, I've got questions. I, I, an inquiring mind wants to know. So then you got, you got the grave that has opened up the bones of Elisha. Not the body of Elisha, the bones is what it says. The bones of Elisha are down there and it's still open. And as this marauding band comes to him, and what are they going to want with the dead guy? Why are they trying to hide the dead guy? I mean, what, what is the deal? Is it because they're like, we got to run? And they just drop the dead guy, and he just happened to bounce into the grave of Elisha. I, I don't. I, I'm not trying to be. I'm not. Please, please don't think I'm trying to belittle or or make light of scriptures. Just my mind is just 
filled with all kinds of questions on how does this work. Were they intending to put him in the same grave? I mean, because they were running out of real estate and so they had to double up on spots? Or was it one of those things that maybe they were burying him with special jewelry and so they were trying to hide him? It doesn't say. It just says that uh, he was thrown into the grave of Elisha. That's verse 21. But as soon as the dead man touched the bones of Elisha, poof, he came back to life and he stood up. Well, that's all God wanted you to know. That is all God wanted us to know. But I would just like to go back and see it visually. I would love to go back and see this whole thing play out. I'm just kind of wondering, you know, did the guy just... Because he said he was thrown into the grave. So here's my sanctified imagination. They take the body and they throw it. And I just wonder if it's like on a trampoline. The guy hits and then boom, he's right back. If he hits and then he starts gurgling and then all of a sudden he stands up. I mean, I just wonder. Special effects. The first time a special effect. I just, you're sitting there and you're just like, you know, the Bible's kind of boring. No, it is not boring. You may say, well, I, I just get bored of reading the Bible. There's nothing in it. There's nothing that's relevant. There's nothing that's interesting. There's nothing that kept, captured my attention. Well, why don't you spend some time thinking about how this scene unfolded and come and share it with me? Because I would love to get your take on how it is that they're carrying, I'm assuming, they, the, they, they were he was thrown in the grave, so I'm assuming his, his compadres there were carrying him along. They see the marauding band. They're like, quick, <laughs> ditch the body. <laughs> they throw him in the grave. The guy stands up, stood on his feet. Now, here's... So he stands up on his feet. Is he still in the grave? Is he looking up over the edge going, hey, hey, don't leave me? Or was it a shallow grave? And so he stood up and started chasing after him. I... Isn't God awesome? He can yes. do things differently. He uses people that we would never use. He used a, a donkey. Yes. He can use anything he wants to. I just think it's... You, you see these... You see these significant, but you also see these things that are just particular to the, the thing of God. Thing he does. How? Because we are dead before we're saved, and so he brings us to life and we come out. It's great. Yeah, but he doesn't describe it the same way. <laughs> he doesn't describe it as, you know, I, I threw the body of Spence into the grave and he touched the bones of Jesus and boom, he came back. I just I, I just think it seems what you get here and I don't want you to come to the Bible and go, man, this is boring. This is not boring. This is some this is some interesting stuff going on about how did this work. All right. You could say, look what God can do. Yes, but there is just some cool things in there. And there are going to be times that people may ask you, how did this work? That's that second portion. That's that second portion. That's right. So even after Elisha was dead, he was still doing miraculous works being dead. That, that, double, that double portion. All right. I got four minutes. So what lessons? Are there any lessons that you can think of that would stick out? Lessons that you would think about um, that would apply to our lives today? God will do whatever He wants to do to, with you, for you, and just got to believe and walk along with you. Okay. Don't bully bald-headed men. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I, I think that I think that's a good idea. Don't bully bald-headed men. That's right. Or don't point it out. Don't 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 make a big deal out of it. Some of some of them are a little self-conscious, right, Harold? Some of them are just a little bit tender. What other lessons? I think it's following your path because he doesn't stop following Elijah. He keeps going. Even though he's like, stay here, he just keeps going because I'm assuming in his heart, and he might something in his heart, he knows that's where he's supposed to be. Yeah. It's like all through the story of Elisha, you just see him doing the next thing. It wasn't that God had downloaded this as all the things that are going to happen. He just went day by day, woke up, God, what do you want me to do today? He did the next thing that God put in front of him to do. I agree. That's that's. I struggle with that. Where, where is the scripture where it talks about believing while you see it, so you believe it? But how much greater believing without seeing? That, that we're able to believe even though we cannot see it. It's the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's in the Thomas. Bible somewhere. <laughs> talks about with Thomas. So that be John chapter twenty. Oh, yeah. John. Yeah, that'd be John nineteen or John twenty. It's in the nail hands of that nail. Yeah. Sometimes we have to take it on faith. We can't see it. That's right. One of the things that sticks out to me is just the perspective of Elisha. Um, you go back and you look in Second Kings chapter six um, after the axe head is recovered. Um, they're camped out, wake up in the morning and a servant goes out and all around them they are surrounded by the enemy, the horsemen of the enemy. And they're surrounded by um, the enemy that is coming for them. And they're coming for them because Elisha kept getting secret information from God about where the enemy was going. So then he would tell the Israeli leaders, this is where your enemies are going, and the Israeli leaders were always a step ahead of the enemy. Well, the enemy is like, how's this happening? And they're like, because Elisha keeps telling the secrets that go on, so then he dispatches a whole slew of soldiers to go and get a hold of Elisha because he's like, hey, we got to keep this guy from tattletelling. So it says there in chapter 6 that they come and they they surround him. Um, This is chapter 6 and verse 15. Um, The servant went out in the morning. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the, the servant said, Alas, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he's flipping out. And Elisha in verse 16 says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. He went out and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha had a perspective that he understood that there was both the physical and the spiritual. There was both the seen and the unseen. And we don't want to go on that one side of the ditch where everything is hocus pocus and everything everything is... Um, more of the well sometimes you go in the ditch where you can go too far on everything is spiritual and everything is um, everything's a battle and we miss that there's balance between the physical and the spiritual there's a balance between the seen and the unseen but Elisha had a perspective he knew that both of these were going on at the same time 
we still have the same thing going on even in our lives. You have physical battles, you have spiritual battles. When the life of this church, you have physical battles and you have spiritual battles. Unity and harmony amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. You have physical battles and you have spiritual battles. Those are both both and at the same time. And sometimes you can get sweet people that can go to seed on the physical battles. The gossiping, the talking, the backbiting, the differences of opinions, hurt feelings, offenses, whatever. And sometimes they can miss that those things are the result of the spiritual battles that are going on all around us. And there is that both and. And, and I think Elisha gives us a, a, a great um, example there in 2 Kings chapter 6 of that perspective. Yes, the enemy was there physically, but he also knew that God was there spiritually. And that balanced his perspective. What other lessons? God is good. I know what's going on. If you've got this right person reading it to you, it gets exciting. <laughs> I got one more, and then I'll, then, I'll, then I'll quit chewing on your ear. 1 Kings 19, when Elijah goes to Elisha, God says anointing. We don't see anywhere that I have found in Scripture where there's a, an official anointing service. Um, Elijah comes to Elisha and uh, he was plowing and Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. So he's walking by him, Elisha's out in the field and he throws his jacket on him and it's like he just keeps on walking. Why do I say that? Because in verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. So as Elijah just walked by, you know, threw his jacket on him and kept going. And Elisha's like, whoa, ran after him and said, hey, let me go tell mom and dad goodbye and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? Kind of like, hey, come with me, come with me. If not, that's up to you. Verse 21, he returned from following him took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. And he rose and went after Elijah and assisted him. How do I take that? I take it as that he was a farmer, had his oxen, but he understood there was a calling of God upon his life. And he said, I am going to abandon my former life to pursue the life that God has for me. So he goes and he takes the oxen, he takes the yokes, the wooden bars that would have yoked the animals together, takes all of that and sacrifices it and destroys it because saying, hey, I'm not going back to that and I'm not leaving anything that I'm going to go back to. That way I am fully devoted and fully committed. Sometimes in our lives we want to put one foot in the kingdom of God and another foot in the world. And we think we're going to do this shuffle thing. And yet the Bible over and over tells us once we're a child of the great high God, we're completely devoted. He says go, we go. He says stop, we stop. He says repent, we repent. There's a devotion that you see through the life of Elisha. He left his family. He left his life to follow the calling that God had for him. That, that, just that level of devotion to say, I'm leaving it all and going after him. There's the old hymn um, that we used to sing as an invitation hymn years and years ago. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And that whole language comes in there about how, you know, with the world behind me, the cross before me. Um, it's just this, this mentality of 
comes to following Jesus. Yes, we're in the world, we're not of the world, and we should have this completely sold out, devoted attitude that I'm all in on Team Jesus, regardless of what that looks like. That's a picture of devotion that I see as an example that we, that I and us should seek to ascribe to. So, Sunday night, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 on Sunday morning. Uh, Sunday night, we'll be in Romans chapter 11, um, looking at the, the salvation of Israel. The next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the Queen of Sheba. Grateful that you were here. Thank you for being here. Anything throughout the week, you get a question about Bible reading, I would love to try to confuse you more if I can. Um, maybe even try to help you out a little bit. But if there's anything that I can help pass you along, then I will be, I will be happy, happy to do that. So, thank you all so much for being here. Kalina, would you pray for us? And we'll go home. Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.